And this is part of like sort of the bull that really, really, really pushes people away. Or would you say, no, Jesus did say that, but he was a child of his time as Paul was, and therefore we can move beyond it now because the world's changed. That's a great, deep, <laughs> thick, complicated question I have to think about more. Why isn't the fact that scripture speaks that way and the fact that Paul, Moses, Jesus speak that way, why isn't that the end of the conversation? And I think it's time for the church to acknowledge that we have brothers and sisters who are gay. This is a part of life in the modern world. If you've ever wondered why Rob Bell was so persuasive for lots of folks, this is one of the reasons why you should be able to immediately recognize when someone is trying to do this to you, and you should be able to respond appropriately. Welcome back, everybody. Let's go on a journey together. Back in time to 10 years ago on The Unbelievable Show with Justin Brierley. Back then, a man named Rob Bell was making waves for challenging the traditional Christian views of hell and sexuality, and not a lot of people had a chance to engage him, except for this video. I saw this video the other night and was absolutely blown away by Andrew Wilson. Uh, he was Rob Bell's interlocutor on the show Unbelievable. Wilson just slayed Bell with cross-examination questions, and I thought, man, this is a master class on what to do <laughs> you know so i just i felt like i needed to show you this so you can see how it's done we're going to talk about what wilson did right we're going to identify what rob bell did to avoid answering tough questions i hope you brought a pen because you should be taking notes on this one who am i thanks for asking my name is nate sala and before i created wise disciple i was a pastor and a debate teacher so let's get right into this one i think it's time for the church to acknowledge that we have brothers and sisters who are gay and want to share their life with someone. Mm -hmm. And this is a part of life in the modern world. And that's how it is. And that cultural consciousness has shifted. Mm -hmm. And that's this is how the world is. And that what's happening for a lot of people is they want nothing to do with God and Jesus because they can't see beyond that particular issue. Yeah. This is partly why I wanted to do this reaction. A lot of us hear someone like Rob Bell, and we think to ourselves, man, how do I respond to this? There is a rhetorical force behind the phrase, it's time for the church to acknowledge our brothers and sisters who are gay. We saw Andy Stanley do this, other people are doing this. There's a rhetorical force to this, right? To, to, to people saying, well, you know, there's a culture uh, shift, and now it's time to be more modern, you know, he, he Rob Bell just said, this is why people reject the church and reject the faith, because we're not willing to get with the times, essentially, right? A lot of us hear that, and we have no idea where to begin in terms of a response. But Bell's interlocutor does. Watch this. Now, this is up to this point, there's been a lot of agreement between you guys, but I suspect you take a different mm. view on mm. this. Andrew. Well, can I ask a, a, some questions? Because what I don't know is the grounding for that. Yeah. that statement that I find interesting. Yeah. So would you say, I don't think that a guy having sex with a guy is sinful? I would begin with, I am for monogamy, I am for fidelity, I am for commitment. And I think the world needs more of that. And I, am, I think that promiscuity is dangerous, and promiscuity is destructive. And some people are gay and want to share their life with someone, and they should be able to. And so here's another reason why I wanted to do this video. All of us, Christians especially, we need to be able to identify and put words to what Bell just did, because he did not answer the question. 
What he did instead was to seek to reframe the issue. And he did so by answering a question that was not asked. What Wilson asked was about a biblical issue that is taught very clearly in the Bible as a sin. And we are taught, do not do this. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor, here it is, men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy drunkards, revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. None will. Wilson is trying to determine what Bell does with passages like this. So he asked, do you think same-sex activity is a sin? Bell said, well, you know, I think monogamy is great and promiscuity is bad. That's not what the question was. People are going to do this to you. When you get out there and you engage others on behalf of God and his word, maybe it's already happened to you, but this will happen. And when they do this kind of a thing, you need to immediately recognize they're not answering my question. They're reframing the discussion so that they can make their answer more palatable. And you need to be able to call that out when it happens. That's how the world is, and we should affirm that, and we should affirm monogamy, fidelity, and commitment, both gay and straight. Is that That's a yes or a no? As in, do you believe it's... So what I'm trying to get my head around is, do you think it's sinful, but we need to lump it because the world's changed? Or do you think it's not sinful? And if so, do you think the Bible doesn't think it's sinful and that Jesus didn't think it was sinful? That's... And I'm not aware that Jesus mentions it. I think you have about five verses that can be read a number of different ways. And there is a large Christian tradition that sees this as there are scriptures that speak to this, but I don't think you can make an overwhelmingly case against it. So, but is your position, which I know is, you know. Yeah. So your position would be, no, it's not sinful, right? It's not sinful for, for a guy to have sex with a guy. That's not a problem for God. It never has been. It's just at times he had to move people towards forward in history, but that's not a problem. If you understand Paul properly, you understand Jesus properly, they genuinely didn't have a problem with guys having sex with guys. Is that, I'm just trying to, is that what you believe? Because I don't want to... So notice what Wilson is doing. He's not saying, hey, you jerk, you're not answering my question. No, he just keeps pressing him. And that's exactly what to do in this kind of situation. Maintain patience, maintain respect, but don't let your interlocutor get away with not answering the question. A critique I think or engage with a position you don't have. Had, but... I think Paul had his answer to that question tied up in worship of all sorts of other deities i think it was all one giant hairball in paul's day and that for him there was the temple and there was the temple of other gods who were opposed to the god of israel and that went on in there so i think when paul was talking about this issue for him it's tied up in all sorts of idolatry it's all sorts of rejection of god so i would want to like pull the various issues apart i don't think they so, but had but a so cultural conception though, then you so Bell's answer, which is a little vague, could be more specific, okay? Bell gives the Brandon Robertson answer. Did you see that? He, he says what a lot of progressives and woke theologians say in this situation. So in other words, when Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, right, or he even writes like in Romans 1, he's not concerned with monogamous same-sex relationships. He, he's concerned with pagan, idolatrous practices. That's what he means by men who practice homosexuality. He's talking about pagan idolatry, which entailed same-sex activity. In other words, you know, Paul says, again, arsinokoitai, right? But what he was really talking about was pagan rituals, which, by the way, if that's what Bell is saying, that needs its own exegetical argument to back it up. So you can't just make that claim. You have to 
prove that that's what Paul was talking about. So let's see what happens next. Got that if Paul is looking at, there's two gay men in the church in Corinth. They want, they're having sex together. They're not worshiping idols. Paul's going to say, that's great, guys. Go for it. We need more of that, not less. Is that, your, is that what you believe is true of Paul? I think Paul didn't have that cultural framework or conception operating around him. I think he had men and boys. I think he had temples. I did not think he was talking about what we're talking about in 2013, which was two committed people of a same-sex relationship. Okay. So here's the claim. Paul had no framework. Are you following this? This is what Bell said. Paul had no framework for same-sex relationships outside the context of pagan idolatrous practice. Right? That's what he means by men and boys. Okay. But wait a second. What about Leviticus 18.22? What about Leviticus 20.13? Setting all emotion aside, just looking specifically at the issue, is it really the case that Paul had no context for same-sex activity outside of what was happening at, say, you know, Ephesus uh, or Corinth, you know, in the first century? Or was this an issue that had been around long before that, that the Torah already commands against? So, 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 so you, you don't think there's any... You don't. So your position would be: This is not sinful. This is righteous. This is a good thing. God says, "Way to go, God!" I, I, from from my throne in heaven, I'm blessing that. I'm saying that's wonderful. It's not. It's a the, beautiful thing. Interesting. The, the theologian Cornelius Plantiga defines sin as culpable disturbance of shalom. So any way in which I'm guilty of destroying the shalom that God intends for all things. Yeah. I don't think a healthy monogamous same-sex relationship destroys or is destructive to the shalom God intends for all things. So you don't think it... You don't so again, reframing the discussion a bit, right? Bell now defines sin in an interesting way that is advantageous to his position. So Plantinga, not that Plantinga, says, God hates sin not just because it violates his law, but more substantively because it violates shalom. This is from a book that uh, Cornelius Plantinga wrote called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. It violates shalom because it breaks the peace, because it interferes with the way things are supposed to be, okay? Notice Bell's not off the hook, though, because he said that shalom is what God intended for things to be. Now, that's the $6 million question, isn't it? What did God intend in the beginning of Genesis? So you see how these kinds of answers only work if you bring to the table certain definitions of terms. And so I hope you're seeing... I mean, especially those of you who have been with me in other debate reaction videos, why definition of terms is one of the most important things that you can do in a debate. Uh, or even a mild disagreement with somebody where you are coming at it from two different uh, worldviews, two different perspectives, right? Especially right at the outset, definition of terms is key. Pay close attention to the way words are used and ask for definitions. I think it's sinful, you know? So, Although so for some you, things are really destructive. Yeah, sure. So, so for you, gay sex isn't isn't sinful at all. And if we understood the Bible properly, we'd all get that. So actually, we are we when Jesus talks about sexual morality flowing from within the heart and refers back to Leviticus eighteen with all of its prohibitions, you would say that's that's a time specific thing. That's just Jesus was was Jesus wrong on that? Did he misunderstand what God well, had meant? Leviticus, was Jesus just a I mean, step forward or? What's the? Because obviously he's just he's talking in the same passages. He says all foods are clean, but from the heart come yeah. sexual morality, among other things. And sexual morality in the Jewish world, as you read a lot about it, as I have, is understood very much in terms yeah, of Leviticus yeah. yeah, eighteen. Yeah. And so, so the so for again, in, I'm trying to get. Would you say right, right. you say Paul didn't have a problem with it? So you don't you don't think 
Paul or Jesus were referring to any of those prohibitions from the from the Old Testament, and, and they, they weren't really talking about anything like what we're seeing today. Or would you say, no, Jesus did say that, but he was a child of his time as Paul was, and therefore we can move beyond it now because the world's changed. It's just which of those two That's a great question. positions you're in. <laughs> That's a great, deep, <laughs> thick, complicated question. I have to think about more. <laughs> so it's like, a, is, is it a question of hermeneutics or is it a question of exegesis? So is it that you and I would disagree about so obviously yeah, right. great about question. Paul or about Jesus, or is yeah, it that you would disagree question. about how that fits into God's story? And you'd say, we go beyond that now. Well, when Jesus is referring... So what's fascinating about Bell, make no mistake, I mean, Bell has captured the attention in the minds of many within what we call the church today. Uh, that's, <laughs> we can disentangle that another time. What's fascinating about Bell is the way that he has the ability to withstand interrogation and calmly reframe the discussion in order to not give an answer. And Couch claims in such a way that he doesn't feel the need to back them up exegetically. And even like when he's asked a very tough question, simply shrug his shoulders and say, wow, that's a really great question. I, I don't know. And, and I wonder if because he's being so magnanimous, right, in the moment, uh, he gets away with the simple fact that once again, he has not answered the question. Are you seeing this for yourself? So he just got pressed with the question, is it really the case that both Paul and Jesus had no context for same-sex activity when there's like, you know, Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20 in the Torah? And Bell says, great question, let me think about it. Which, which you know, by the way, is a question we all need to think about, right? We all need to wrestle with this question. But the difference between us and Bell is he's speaking in a manner that challenges the traditional teaching of Scripture, including Leviticus, that clearly teaches what is a sin. Bell says, that's not really a sin. So he needs to have an answer to this question, or else he shouldn't be teaching about these things at all. To Leviticus, tied up in Leviticus is two different kinds of fabric being woven together. So you have lots of questions about Jesus' understanding of Leviticus based on, because, wait, 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 wait. Is he calling people to two different kinds of fabric, and can we do that now? And I, th I think when Jesus quotes Leviticus, that that's opens up a whole series of questions about exactly where in Leviticus we say that's timeless, that's not timeless, that's cultural, that's not culturally bound. That's a whole longer discussion. Well, yeah, but when he talks about sexual morality, it's quite... Yeah. So I don't know if you caught Wilson's argument here, and it's, 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 it's hard to catch because... First of all, he's speaking very quickly. It's, you know, British, uh, kind of a British thing. But he's also, he, he didn't give chapter and verse for this exactly. But he mentions that Jesus said, out of the heart come evil thoughts, right? This is in Matthew chapter 15, verse 18. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, right? But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone, okay? Wilson's point is that Jesus did not just say sexual immorality as if that phrase had no meaning to it. He says Jesus says sexual immorality and is immediately thinking of how the Torah defines it, including Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13. By the way, uh, Leviticus 18.22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman, it is an abomination. Leviticus 20.13, if a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination, they shall surely be put to death, their blood is upon them. Just for reference, okay? Now, Wilson, like I said, has made an argument that I've not heard before, uh, but it sounds pretty solid, 
You know, Jesus used this particular phrase, and when he did sexual morality, he was thinking of uh, what the Torah teaches. And then Bell simply said, well, we don't know whether those commands against same-sex activity in Leviticus were just for the Jews in that time period or for all time. Okay, so again, just so we're all on the same page, we can put words and identify what Bell is doing. Bell, on the one hand, says that monogamous same-sex activity is totally acceptable in the sight of God. And on the other hand, he doesn't know if Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 22 are for all time. And he also doesn't know whether Paul or Jesus really had no context for same-sex activity other than pagan idolatry in the first century. And my point is, if he doesn't know the answer to these things, then don't go around teaching about it. That in that sense, I'm just saying, you know, Jesus yeah. is understanding as a Jewish first century Jew, his understanding of yeah, yeah. sexual morality is Torah shaped, right? So he he has a view of yeah. what is and isn't acceptable. So when he says that's one of the evils that comes from the heart, yeah. um, he he's not he's not whistling in the dark. He's not saying that in a vacuum. People, his hearers understand him. Matthew, yeah, not yeah, yeah. John, etc. Yeah. Paul understands him. I, I, obviously, I would disagree with the, with the way you're understanding Paul's use of the words in, as well, but and we probably won't get time to well, get to that. But we, we, we sort of have veered off into a particular area about, about how this works out, because at the outset, um, Andrew, you, you, one of the concerns you voiced is, well, well, I like a lot of what you're saying here, Rob, um, but what does it look like practically? And, and what are some of the maybe the differences we might have about how that works out and we've obviously identified one pretty clearly here that um you take a very different view on rob to the legitimacy of christians engaging in homosexual activity um rob says you know that boat has sailed kind of thing we we live in the culture and we've got to affirm um what is good you know uh, people saying together um people uh, being with one person and so on for you though the Bible presumably is clear on this, Andrew, that, that that is not part of what it means to live a Christian life. And so for you, do you feel in some way that Rob is selling people short if that's not kind of the answer that he comes to if, if that issue is raised at some point in what it means to be a Jesus follower? Yeah, I, I do, um, because I think it's a misunderstanding. To me, it represents a misunderstanding of new creation. I think it's... To go back to the garden and see one man, one woman, permanent, faithful, exclusive, other, you know, different from one another. You go all the way through Moses, all the way through the Old Testament, what it says about same-sex relations. Not about gay people. Love gay people. Lots and lots and lots of gay people. Just we baptized a number of gay men in, my, in our church recently. It's just wonderful. But each one of them is saying, but now when I get baptized, I die to the old me and I rise again to a new me that's Christ-shaped, that's eschatologically informed and transformed. I they might not use that language. A resurrection life, which is actually a completely different type of creature, which means that a lot of the desires that I, that I have had, a lot of the things which I've wanted to do, I, like Paul did, certainly in the season he wrote 1 Corinthians, and like Jesus did, I put on hold sexual desires. I say, actually, I die to a lot of the things I want in order to follow Christ. Amen. That's what it means for me to rise again to new life. And I do that as per Jesus's comments about sexual morality, Revelation's comments about sexual morality, Paul's comments about arsenokoitai and malakoi, which are these two words for the active and passive partners in homosexual sex and, and very in Romans one and elsewhere. And, and so you, we look and say, well, what is, what is Christ shaped new creation look like? And we've got, as I say, gay guys in our church and, and women as well, who've said for me, 
I know dying to my old life and being risen again to new life in Christ means dying to all the acts of the flesh, including some of the sexual things that, yes, I wanted to do them, just like lots of people want to have sex with lots of people. Some people might want to have sex with three or four people simultaneously, but that doesn't mean I'm okay to do that. Um, it means that I just, like anybody else, greed or desires to slander or to swindle or any number of other sins that we just say those things die with me. I, I repent and I get baptized. And I suppose that for me to to not put that in front of somebody is at risk of saying you can ha you can have the kingdom, you can inherit the kingdom. Um, mm -hmm. if, if but if it costs too much, we'll just we'll just lower the asking price until we get. People okay, to buy so, it. so so is this is are you I'm well aware that some of you are watching this video and you are you're questioning, you know, you maybe don't believe in God, but you recognize that your own beliefs at the moment are insufficient to explain what is going on in the world and to explain your own experiences with it. And so videos like these are a great way to sort of quietly wrestle with issues where you don't have to say anything out loud, you just kind of, you know, you're thinking, which you should be, right? We all should be genuinely seeking truth. Uh, and with these kinds of videos, there are no real stakes here. You know, we're not face-to-face, -face, we're not arguing with each other, right? But if you do wanna know what this Christianity thing is about, you get to truly wrestle with what it says and where we get our ideas from, okay? I'm a pastor and a Bible teacher, and I'll tell you what the Bible says and why it says it, all right? For those of you that I just characterized, you have to ask yourself, who is more accurately capturing what the Bible teaches? Andrew Wilson, who says that Jesus calls all of us to pick up our cross and die to self and follow him, be transformed into his likeness as we continue to do that? Or is it Rob Bell? Hey, real quick, I'm so glad that you're watching, but did you know that 68% of you that watch are not subscribed to the channel? Can you believe that? That blew my mind when I saw that. That's amazing. Would you please help me get this video out to more people by liking and subscribing to the channel? I really do appreciate it. I've continued to show this particular verse, but I mean, you know, I'll, I'll keep doing it until people get tired of, of the scripture. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. This is, what, this is Jesus speaking. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. If this passage tells you anything, at base it tells you there is a cost. There, there is something you are giving up for the sake of following after Christ. And Wilson is capturing this very well. This is what Jesus taught, right? Wilson knows the scripture, uh, knows what Jesus really said. And even though this is counterintuitive for a lot of skeptics, Jesus' answer is life-giving. It's transformational. It gives eternal life. Lowering the, the bar, if as it were. I mean, I know I've heard you talk about the cost of discipleship, Rob, but for you, this particular issue isn't one that's kind of... Um, an issue in discipleship as far as you're concerned this isn't the big issue for you of, correct of, of what i mean how do you how do you address andrew's concerns then that that this is the you know uh, part of what it means to be a follower of christ is denying certain aspects of your life including if if you experience same-sex attraction that, that that acting on that has has to go you just don't see that i've I've, I've met lots of people who are gay and 
had the exact experience he's talking about, who said, I choose to be celibate. I choose to not engage. And they do it out of a deep sense of conviction. And that, that can be a beautiful thing. I also have friends who have had long-term partners and they have they have had somebody to share their life with and they're serious followers of Jesus and they're serious members of their community and they give and serve together and they don't want to live alone. They want somebody to share their life with. They feel like wired to share their life with somebody and I don't see any reason to say to them you can't do that or or you then can't be a part of the church or you can't be a contributing member doesn't make any sense to me i mean obviously so many of us have been faced with this kind of situation you know someone we've engaged in discussion has brought up this kind of anecdotal situation you know well there are lots of same-sex couples who are monogamous but also follow jesus and are also great members of their community what's wrong with that and we don't know how to respond Watch how Wilson responds. This is exactly what you should do. A lot of people who disagree simply with your your view on what Scripture has to say in that regard, how we exegete it, the hermeneutic perhaps that you're you're bringing to it, will say, "Well, it's it's like you did with Love Wins, Rob. You know, um, you've you've gone liberal, basically." That they'll say. Um, now, I'd just be interested to know what what it is about that makes you feel confident that that this isn't just Rob Bell going liberal. This is actually Rob Bell being true to Christ, being true to the scriptures. Well, I, I think the better question is, what does it look like when it's lived out? And I've been in lots and lots and lots of settings with lots of friends and lots of people who have same-sex relationships. And it's not destructive and it's not evil and it's not, it's a part of how churches are. It's a part of how life is, and it's fine. That's the that's surely to, that's the, to beg the question, though, isn't it? To say I've been in lots of friends relationships with people who are doing this, and it's not destructive or it's not evil. Surely, God gets to define that, doesn't He? Over and above, not not to speak about the individuals concerned, but did you catch that answer? Did you catch the because it's key? Did you catch the answer? We can make anecdotal observations all day long, but who gets to define what is not destructive? What is not evil? Is it us or is it God? Is it us or is it God's word? Right? That is an appeal to a standard. And what we're ultimately faced with is trying to find an objective standard for what is good and righteous and holy. And it must be God's word. It, it, it can't be our own observations. This is exactly how you respond when this situation happens to you. Very, very good on Wilson for doing this. God gets to provide that definition rather than my observation. It's like you can imagine people in the period of one or two kings, which I'm going through in my quiet times at the moment, going, well, actually, I know lots of people who, who worship at the high places and, and they still follow Yahweh. That's great. And the, the scriptures don't seem to have that attitude. They seem to be saying, no, 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 there, there, is, there are moments, a lot of them, where Jesus said, if anybody wants to follow me, he needs to hate in the sense of lesser love these all of these things that you might otherwise have to lose if you follow me and of course paul was like that it cost him his, his life and it cost, it cost jesus his life obviously it cost him sexual relationships neither of them had those things so it is sort of doesn't god get to draw that line rather than i don't say you i know there's others who are doing it too but why isn't that why isn't the fact that scripture speaks that way and the fact that paul moses jesus speak that way why isn't that the end of the conversation in terms of defining what something might be, to be evil and destructive what something looks like your interpretation of verses 
My interpretation, no, not my interpretation. Well, of course it is. We're all doing our own interpretation of verses, but it's not only an interpretation of verses. It's, it's an understanding of the sweep of Scripture starting from the very beginning where you have one man, one woman in permanent relationship and you go all the way the through sweep. the rest of your understanding of the sweep of scriptures. What understanding of... So, once again, look what happens. Bell is asked a very important question that appeals to some kind of objective standard for what is good, righteous, and holy. And instead of answering that question, he starts asking his own questions. Okay? And he's doing so to implicitly suggest that Wilson doesn't interpret the scripture correctly. If you've ever wondered why Rob Bell was so persuasive for lots of folks, this is one of the reasons why. He's very good at navigating difficult moments by using his language in rhetorically interesting ways to get him out of the hot seat and to even to turn the tables on someone. And when you're in a situation like this, you should be able to immediately recognize when someone is trying to do this to you, and you should be able to respond appropriately. Genesis 1, understanding yeah. of Genesis 2, understanding of the Torah, understanding yeah. of the prophets, understanding of Jesus, understanding of Paul Revelation. Of course, that's, that's always what we're talking about. But I think to say... Oh, but that's your understanding. Of course, it is my understanding, just like yours yeah. is yours. But yours, unlike mine, is obviously in the in the face of apparent meanings of lots and lots of texts supported by almost every scholar. And it's also in the face of 2,000 years of Christian tradition in which that hasn't been the way people have read any of those texts. So with Justin, I'm sort of saying, if you move the goalpost, isn't, isn't the... I was going to say that maybe the, the humility of orthodoxy is to say, I'll stay where the church is unless I'm sure that the church has always been wrong about this. And in that sense, I want to understand what arguments you were bringing to the table to suggest that the church had always been wrong about it. Um, yeah. Well, as much as I agree with the desire to win, and I want to, I want to see people liberated and free and everything as well, but I think unless the definition of what freedom looks like is clearly established, we're, we're both going to be on very different pages about how to go about it. I mean... The, the this kind of strikes so, me as kind of whoa, a fundamental. Oh, no answer then. Bell just looks over to Briarly. No answer? Is, is that what just happened? There's no answer here. Thing that's kind of been symptomatic of, of what you've been doing lately, Rob, is a lot of people saying, are you giving up a kind of an orthodox position? What, what sort of, on what basis can you claim to be speaking now the truth about god you know you, you've titled your book what we talk about when we talk about god and and while there's a lot that you and andrew have been happy to agree on on that front obviously when you get to these particular issues and this is a particular issue and it, i don't want to frame this as the only issue out there by, by any stretch of the imagination but you know what how do you kind of say no i'm really firm that this, this is is it because you what you've talked about is essentially experience i think that you've seen that there are people who are gay who are in relationships and they're living out a true life of christian discipleship is, is that the kind of the defining thing that, that if you see that happening then then that for you is enough to to say we did get it wrong for a long time on this on this issue right here is the most replayed moment in the entire video okay half a million views on youtube Here's the most replayed moment. So let's pay close attention. Briar Lee just asked Bell what his biblical justification is for teaching things that appear to go against the teaching of Scripture. Witness of the community, you have your own experience. You have lots of scholarship. Um, you have lots of things that inform why you think the way you do. You draw on lots of sources. Hmm. That's how we all do it. Yeah. And people will disagree with you, obviously. Yeah. What, I mean, what? I suppose what... What is the scholarship, though? I mean, I get to the, the, you know, the appeal to community and the appeal to experience. What is the appeal to scholarship? Which scholarship? 
Because whatever the scholarship is, it's going to have to provide some kind of exegetical argument that challenges the traditional understanding of passages in Leviticus, uh, in 1 Corinthians 6, and in Romans 1. What do you do with that disagreement? Do you just say, it's just it's just a kind of an impasse we're at? Um, are, you, are you kind of confident that people will come around to, in this is issue, your way of looking at things? Well, Andrew's my brother. Like, if we got out the bread and wine, we'd both take it. And then go and, surfing. And then go surfing. <laughs> so I don't. I understand it one way. I read it one way. Mm -hmm. He reads it another way. Is that it then? Do we just like part ways? Or do you take the bread and wine and does Christ hold us together? Is there something that trumps whatever differences we have? Like that's the question. Mm. Like literally you're asking. And this is part of like sort of the bull that really, really, really pushes people away is when you have a particular conviction and all of a sudden your orthodoxy or your faithfulness to Jesus is all of a sudden called into question. Mm. So when I get an interview like this and it inevitably comes around to whether I'm not, I'm a, mm. and you didn't say whether or not I'm a Christian, but it's the same like, have you gone liberal? Have you given up? Mm. Um, you haven't said what about like the you you haven't you like asked a series of questions of Andrew about what about this what about this what about yeah. this it comes back to me this is why so many people don't want to be a part of the church mm. this is why so many people is literally if you are on a particular issue because you have just defined this as a particular issue if you see it this way and not this way then your whole thing is called into question Rob are you even um this is just why so many people yeah. just give up I I mean I can what's at stake though. That's the question that must be asked right now. Okay, got it. Christians can be harsh with each other over a concern to guard the teaching of Scripture. Although, wait a second, where do we get that concern? We got it from Paul, right? 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. We got to get it right. But avoid irreverent babble. For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, here it is, who have swerved from the truth. They are upsetting the faith of some. What's at stake when people swerve from the truth? Is it not their eternal salvation? And if that's the case, which it is, uh, well, then is this really just a, well, you know what, Wilson reads the Bible one way, and I read the Bible another way. Or is this really about telling people that they don't need to die to self, they don't need to pick up their cross. They, they don't need to be sanctified. They, they don't need to be transformed into the image of the Son, which Romans 8.29 tells us, right? That's uh, Romans 8.29, 8.28 8, to 30, I should say. The whole reason, the whole ballgame, why God did what he did with humanity. Take a look at this, Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. I think that means the stakes are really high. But Bell should also answer, what's at stake here? And for Bell, sounds like the answer is not that much. You can tell that you're, you're fed up with that aspect well, it's just of... Part of, of I think it just speaks to the stuff that so many people are so tired of. And this isn't an issue of taking God seriously. This isn't an issue of God's holiness or this isn't an issue of worship. This isn't an issue of discipleship. It's an issue of the tent might be a little bigger. And when it becomes, you're not even the tent. Um, 
Well, you it, just sort it of might, go. I, I understand that, but it might be an issue of God's holiness, might it? Can you see that if you saw the text the way sure, I sure, do, sure. it would be an issue of God's holiness? So sure. You can see why but even then, the whole framework for him was on this particular issue. So we have a wide-ranging discussion about mm. resurrection all the way across. We come mm. down to one issue, and it's not nuclear weapons. It's not immigration. Mm. It's not the addiction to technology and email and all the ways in which people are fed, are overwhelmed with stress and worry. Where Jesus did say, don't worry. You know what I mean? Like, mm. like you have a wide range mm. of issues. Mm. Somebody comes along. Those are all really great points to make, by the way. And we all should be, especially those of us in the church, should be critiqued when we don't live up to Christ's commands in these areas. Worry, anxiety, trust in the Lord. We lack faith, right? Not sure about the nuclear weapons part, exactly. But, but these are good critiques. But the, that does nothing to absolve Bell from his own responsibilities to the claims that he has made in the area of same-sex activity. Because he directly challenges what the Bible teaches. And so... Nobody should take that lightly. And this issue, apparently, there's an issue with them on this particular issue, and instantly Can it becomes I, a whole if thing. I just pitch it, I think the reason, so that's why I think I for we're, me we're going to have of, to just wind things up, guys. So that's why, that's this, why it, for me it's part of like. Seriously. The question is why is the why is the issue there, isn't it? So yeah, I think yeah. with the, I think it's not just a random randomly chosen issue. What are your views on this issue? That's the buzzword for the day. So yeah, we'll sure. catch you out on that. It's how you got to that position. And I think in some ways what I'm trying to establish is if you, if you got to the position of saying, I affirm this because I genuinely don't believe that anything in the Bible indicates that it's sinful. And therefore, I think we should celebrate it because the because God does, because Jesus does, because the apostles did, because the prophets did. This is just a great thing. And 2000 church, years of church history have been wrong. They've been reading it wrong. And here's a whole bunch of scholarship to support that position. If that's how you got there, then I'd say, well, I disagree, but I'd love to see the evidence, love to work yeah, it through. Sure. If you're saying the world's moved on, God's going to get left behind if we don't change it, even though, to be honest, I've got a sneaking feeling that there might be a lot in Scripture that speaks against us, but I just don't think we can afford to keep sticking with that because it looks boring and retrograde and backward and intolerant. Then, So we will drop what I think Jesus or Paul or the apostles or anybody else was saying in order to make ourselves more adaptable to modern age. That mm. doesn't mean you're not a Christian. Of course it doesn't. It doesn't mean you've even gone, in my understanding, liberal is resurrection denying and you're not doing close to doing that. But it does mean that there's something quite fundamental that, might be switching which is saying i don't think that i can hold this text as being mm. my high standard for behavior and morality anymore and that's a big enough deal to people like me that yeah, we would want to say this is a do you see what i mean and i think yeah, you would if you shared my view on those texts you'd probably so wilson right at the end framing the discussion a bit to point out that bell needs more than human experience and anecdotes he needs serious exegetical argumentation and a history of scholarship to back him up because what is at stake is, I mean, besides the things that I mentioned already, Scripture itself. I don't think it's disconnected. What has been happening with the development of woke, progressive Christian thought and what Rob Bell was saying in this discussion 10 years ago. The common thread here is what I pointed out going all the way back to, you know, Calvin Robinson versus Dr. Espinoza. And that is the elevation of experience over exegesis. The, the elevation of self over Scripture, or maybe even self over the Spirit, right? How many times are we presented with that dichotomy in the Bible? Walking by the flesh versus walking by the Spirit. Paul said in Galatians 5.19, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, all these things. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God.
The first thing he lists is sexual immorality, which again is defined by Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13. But if you walk by the Spirit, he says, read verse 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. What happens when we open the door to the idea that our own experience reshapes how we understand the biblical teaching? What happens is the whole of Scripture now becomes open to reinterpretation. Not just that these same-sex passages, we think, are a problem today, but what about tomorrow when our desires continue to be reshaped according to our own experience? That means all of Scripture can be reinterpreted to be whatever we think is best for us according to our own experience. Is that not one of the fundamental components of progressive theology? He feels similarly. So it's really which, which way have yeah, you yeah, got yeah. to that conclusion, I guess, is the yeah, question I'm wanting that's to. Well said. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, as I said at the beginning, I came across this conversation and I thought to myself, man, what a brilliant masterclass in how to respond to someone like Rob Bell. Because I got news for you, friends. There are lots of Rob Bells out there. Do you remember his rise to fame? Uh, his rise to popularity just a few years back. Again, I do not see a disconnect between Bell's teachings and the overall progressive Christian movement. There are lots of common threads here. So let me end with a nugget uh, that I usually teach Christians when I travel to their church and, and sort of teach first state evangelism. Uh, for those of you unfamiliar, part of the focus of this channel is in teaching folks how to effectively communicate their faith to others. Well, oftentimes, we'll find ourselves in a situation where we've asked someone a question, a great question, okay, that is designed to further our particular point, and the person doesn't answer the question. They do what Rob Bell did in this video. They avoid the question. They try to reframe it, and they start talking about something else entirely. This is where I suggest you do something that I call narrating the conversation. Narrating the conversation is when you literally say to the person you're talking to something along the lines of, I just asked you a question about the biblical justification for your claims, okay? But instead of answering my question, you started talking about something else. Before we go to that specific subject, would you mind answering my original question first? You see how this works? You narrate the conversation back to the person you're talking to. Essentially, you're not letting your interlocutor change the subject, okay? You're calling them out <laughs> in a very gentle way, right? They have not answered the question, and you're politely restating the question, and then you're asking for their response. That way you stay on track. You don't let the person you're talking to get away from the issue. Now, Wilson did a bit of this. He, he started laying a framework and he was restating his questions, right? But also notice he never got upset. He never lost his cool. He didn't even say, hey, you're not answering my question. He just restated it and waited for a response. This is exactly what I suggest you do. It's textbook, okay? And here's what happens. Oftentimes people do this kind of thing. They don't answer the question that you've asked because they don't know the answer themselves. So to force them to confront this simple fact does a lot of work to get someone to change their minds, particularly when they cannot answer the question that you've asked. You should try it, okay? Narrate the conversation the next time that something like this happens to you and just see how it goes, okay? I promise you, you'll be in a much better position to change someone's mind to reconsider their point of view. It takes some practice. It takes a lot of intentionality, but you can do it. Okay, well, now it's your turn to sound off. What would you have done when sitting face-to-face -face with Rob Bell? What would you have asked Bell if you had the chance? Let me know in the comments below. 
As always, if you made it this far, you should definitely consider joining my Patreon community where you can get early access to videos, exclusive access to videos that I do not post on YouTube. Just click the link to my Patreon below for that. As always, I will return soon with more videos, but in the meantime, I'll say bye for now.